forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open. With tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 Euro per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vorsprung durch Technik. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to this normal podcast where normal people talk about normal stuff. How's yes. everybody doing? Pause for response. That's, That's great. great. <laughs> We're so happy for you. So stoked. I'm glad your lives have probably been a lot more normal than ours. Once again, we're hot messes. Mm, truth. Very truthful. The huge. Um, and we are on our first episode of our Western Australian season. We are. So what much to celebrate. a journey. What a journey. Massive journey. Um, Massive journey. As always, uh, we start off by asking you to please become a Patreon for some Patreon-only content. Um, there's different strands. Uh, you can request us to do things. I'll sing a song. We'll go through your astrology chart. Whatever you want. Um, yeah, we've, we've done both of those things. We've actually. done both of those things. Um, so if you would like to do that, that will be in the bio. If you would like um, some Mitloo merch, you can head to the Public website. It's on there for you as well. Um, once again, very close to 10,000 subscribers. We are not there yet and I am very salty about it. Jess wants it more than she's ever wanted anything in her life. I told two customers at work today, so if we get another spike tonight, that'll be why. I, if you get a, a spike being two people? Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, the money from the Patreon supports our podcast. Um, you know, books cost money. And yes, paying journalists, which I, after listening to our last episode where we said we didn't want to pay for journalism, I've decided, no, yes, we do want to pay for our journalism. I want to pay for certain journalism. Yeah. Some journalists can get in the bin, but the others can stay. Sometimes when I like click on like a career mail article and it's like, this is behind a paywall. I'm like, how much is a human being really willing to pay for the career mail? <laughs> Apparently quite a lot. Um, so there's Apparently. that. Um, yes, first uh, Western Australian season, uh, episode of our Western Australian season. Uh, some of our cases haven't been picked. So if you have anything that you would like us to cover, please send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. Either Ellen or I or Zane will get back to you. Um, we love interacting with you guys. We've just had some interaction on our Instagram this afternoon. Um, lovely girl. Let me grab up her Instagram handle. Um, meow, 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 meow. Pausing, pausing. Dana. Um, and Dana said she is really enjoying our darker history um, and that we're covering Australia rather than America. Um, she was also asking us if we would consider doing the Daniel Morecambe case. Just going to say on air, Dana, probably not. It's very um, traumatic and we try and avoid uh, children cases as much as possible. Um, and then she also brought up something about a history of Victoria Park. Apparently it's got like some spooky history. So Ellen, I think you'd love that. That's great because I've been thinking, I've been honestly racking my brain about what to do for our 
upcoming Halloween episode. Halloween, which is Ellen's favourite. She did that stunning episode last year that you can listen to um, where she went around the country and picked out some ghost stories. Yeah, I I accidentally fucked myself because I told every single Australian ghost story in one episode and now I've got nothing. Well, now apparently you need to look at Victoria Park. Great, Victoria Park. I was also thinking about doing cryptids. If anybody's interested in that, hit a brother up. Let me know. (laughs) You're interested in doing cryptids. What's a crypta? Cryptids. Cryptids. Yeah. Like, 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 I can't believe we don't know what cryptids are and I can't believe I have to explain it. Like, like Bigfoot and like, you know, creatures that like aren't, like a yowie. and like Well, maybe just for Halloween. I don't know. I was thinking about ideas. (laughs) I was honestly walking down the street and it was like raining and I was like listening to another podcast but not paying attention to it. And I was like, but what about Halloween? (laughs) What am I going to tell the people on Halloween? I don't have any ideas. I actually do have a few, but. Well, that's exciting. None of them are good. But thank you so much for your message, Donna. That's very sweet of you. Um, We really appreciate your support. We appreciate all of your support. Um, yeah, so let's get cracking. So it's Ellen's turn to open the season. I'm sure you're all jumping Tis. for joy. Um, so no. everybody is so firmly planted in their seats right now. <laughs> they're like, oh, mostly at, better crack. They're like, you think I'm jumping? Ellen's doing an episode. You think, yes. If yes, that is, that is what you do. When Jess is doing an episode, you drink like a, like a tea or like a rosé. When it's me, you please pop open your state's like pathetic beer of choice stunning all right so ellen what are we talking about tonight we are talking about the murder well it's the story slash the case of a woman named martha rendell who was a martha good old martha nothing bad ever happens to a lady named martha um just kidding she poisoned her three stepchildren in perth in 1902 Seven to nineteen oh eight, basically. Jeez. Or maybe she didn't. Imagine the fashion. Oh, she looks like uh, she looks like she honestly looks terrifying. So there is like one picture of her. There's two pictures of her that exist. One is probably made up because it was like this is a photo of Martha Randell at her trial, but there she wore a veil the entire time she was at trial so nobody ever really saw her face so people think that they just made that's up that's creepy they're Martha, like old why'd you do that what do you mean she did it so people weren't like this heinous bitch she was like disguise not disguising her identity but she wore like like a morning veil oh that's creepy as shit this is the photo i wonder if i hold it up can you see it oh presh she looks so like you see hyacinth what? bouquet from she does <laughs> <laughs> if Hyacinth Bouquet was a potential triple murderer, that's what she looks like. That's the, yes, exactly. Um, so this is her story, and also the story of the people that she murdered. Maybe. Oh, cool. So as I said, this happened in the late nineteenth century. So Perth at that time was really just like you know, like just before this happened, Perth was like nothing there was no people there there was four kangaroos and like a tumbleweed and like eight people it was like dead and just like hot and like deserty and nobody was there what a party what a party probably like the like apex of perth's <laughs> history um so it was about had a population of about three thousand settlers all of whom were kind of brought over from like the eastern side on those like schemes where they're like hey 
come and cultivate this land and we'll give you this land kind of schemes that the government did all the time back in the day. And then gold was discovered in Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie in the late 1800s and a massive gold rush happened. So people came from literally all over the world to come and work in the gold fields and in the mines and in the towns that sprung up around them. So Perth's population went from 3,000 to about 61,000 in less than 10 years. Jesus. Yeah, so the four kangaroos were like, oh, my God, what the fuck? What what are y'all doing here? And they're like, there's gold, mate. And the kangaroos are like, we don't understand. We're kangaroos. Please, Please stop hunting us and eating us. And they're like, no. Anyway, um, so once... During this whole thing, like, Australia, I was like, hey, we're considering becoming a real country. Perth, you interested? And Perth's like, not not really, to be honest with you. We're not on board with that. And the rest of Australia, then, like, the gold was discovered and the rest of Australia was like, hey, Perth, if you don't become a part of the Federation, we're going to create another state, which, like, includes all your gold fields but not you. So if you want to join the Federation, you're better your best and Perth was like wow what a convincing offer sounds great can't wait to be a part of this nation um and then of course 1901 Australia became a federated nation um and then but we're still not- part of the commonwealth we're still part of the commonwealth also Australia has something like what is it 15,000 or 8,000 or 9,000 or something indigenous nations so saying that we're a federated state because like the six of us were like well who will join is not really no not really the historical truth but let's just go with the whitewash version of events because that's what we were taught in school that's what we were taught in school uh and anyway so Perth's like cool we're rich um the gold rush didn't last that long as gold rushes usually don't and Basically, the majority of the gold was all gone before the First World War, which left a number of the towns that had popped up around the mine sites almost completely deserted. But Perth was like, Perth was kind of fine. They had managed to develop and use that money from mining to kind of turn itself into a real city and not just like an outback, you know, Spectacular. Shack. <laughs> 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 gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> That's a niche reference. Coming to the so, Gold Coast. Let's coming to a Gold Coast near you. Um let's talk about murder, baby. So to begin the story of Martha Rendell, we're actually gonna pop on back to th- South Australia real quick, where a man named Thomas Morris was very keen on this woman whose name was Sarah Simmons. And he was like, I am going to make Sarah Simmons my wife. And Thomas Morris's family was like, We think you can do a little bit better. And Thomas was like, no, she's the one. I'm going to marry her. And his family was like, "Mm, she's kind of poor and like a little bit questionable though. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. So he and Sarah eloped to Melbourne and got married in 1882. Thomas was not like, his family was not like, oh, I'm Mr. Darcy. He was just like kind of like not as poor as her. And so the family was a little bit like, "Mm, you can do better, Thomas. You have one pound. She has no pounds. Also, they probably um, had the eyes on the prize of the dowry. Yeah, they were the probably get- like, look, we, the boys get the the dollary dues or the pounderoos back in the day. <laughs> pounderoos. The pounderoos. That does not sound good. Never mind. 
let's that's that's wipe that from the record. So they got married, Melbourne, Victoria, eighteen eighty two. They had seven children. Um, wow. Only one of which, uh, yeah, well, you know, there's not much else to do. Uh, only one of their seven children who were born in Victoria, quote, paid the debt of nature at an early age, which meant that, you know, reproductively, Sarah and Thomas were doing pretty well. They're like, okay, you know, one out of seven's not bad. Fuck. So <laughs> Thomas was a carpenter and he was a foreman in a contract building company and he would often do contracts in various locations outside of uh, Victoria. And so he was, Sarah kind of raised the children. He was like, honey, I'm home for a couple of weeks and then I'm off again. So they moved from. I'm pregnant again. Yeah. She's like, that's great. I've had five children since you've been gone. (laughs) Um, So they moved back to South Australia in the mid 1890s. They had two more children. They are. And sometime shortly after their return to Adelaide, Thomas Morris met a woman named Martha Rendell who is working as a domestic servant in a hotel. Oh, my God, there's some Downton Abbey bullshit. It's a little Downton Abbey, I suppose. Well, they're wearing corsets. Um, it seems tizzier than it is. It's not very – these people were not fancy. These were these were the, like, the no, downstairs know, of the upstairs downstairs. It feels past. Oh, because it's in the past – even like, even like when you watch like Les Mis and there are all those prostitutes on the street and they're wearing those like long dresses. I'm like, oh, what a fancy lady. <laughs> it's just like this seduction of like a period costume. You're like, yeah. oh, madam. So Martha Randell was born on the 10th of August, 1871 in Adelaide, South Australia. Nothing at all happened in her life of note up until she was 15 and she left home to work in domestic service. She uh, had three illegitimate children and never married or did anything else that landed her in any kind of historical record wow. until she met Thomas Morris. Um, yes. And what a she lady of began... loose morals. Sh- yes. Yes. Well, back then. Don't slut shame her. No, no. Back the three then. illegitimate children in the 1900s, that's fucking racy. It was massively racy and this is going to come into play later on. In the story. Um, yeah, so she met Thomas Morris. The The things that I read were kind of, like, confused about how and when they met, so I decided not to repeat them because I couldn't verify them. But they did meet, um, and they began having an affair, and the affair was pretty public, and most of their, like, neighbours and everything knew about it and gossiped about it, and Sarah Morris also knew about it. But, you know, she was a woman in the 1890s, so she couldn't really do anything apart from be like, hmm, and have children. Um, so as I mentioned before, Thomas's work schedule meant that he was like back and forth quite a bit. Um, in 1900, he went off to Perth for a time and he brought Martha with him and left the wife and kids back in Adelaide. Um, what a dog. which Sarah, Sarah did not appreciate that. No. Um, about a year later, he brought Sarah and the kids to Perth. Um, most of the kids came with him. Two of the oldest kids were left behind. And then he sent them back to Adelaide again shortly after that and was like, okay, I'll come back to Adelaide too. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, And then he changed his mind again and was like, no, just kidding. Come back to Perth. So they moved back and forth forth from Perth, South Australia quite a few times. And then eventually they all landed in Perth. It was a bit too late for Sarah and Thomas's relationship. Um, The the distance, the long-term affair, everything like that, the marriage just, just disintegrated. Sarah was like, you were cheating on me. And Thomas was like, you're cheating very on public. me, actually. Very public. He was, 
he was having a affair, but there were kind of like like one of his sons had told him that he'd seen his mother like drinking with another man and stuff like that. So Thomas accused her of having affairs and having multiple lovers and being a drunk and everything like that, and their relationship broke down. Um, they were granted a separation in 1906, and Morris was given custody of the five children in their care, and Sarah was declared an unfit mother. Oh, that poor woman. I know. Justice just for, for just Sarah. For, oh, my hashtag God. Hashtag justice for Sarah Morris. It's not too late. That's, that's um, fucking atrocious. I know. It's horrible. This this story, like, the, the, the attitudes towards women do not improve from this point, let me tell you. So Sarah, like, tried to have a bit of a relationship with the children for a little while after that, um, but eventually she kind of faded out of the picture, and she didn't have any contact with her children after that. Uh, Thomas paid her, like, two pounds a month or something like that in maintenance, and she lived in a nearby suburb and took extra work as a washerwoman to support herself. Thomas and the five children moved to a house in East Perth, which was like a mad, dodgy, like, working-class suburb um, at that point. Possibly still is. I don't know anything about Western Australia. Um, if you are, let us know. Let us know. Are you from East Perth? Is it nice now? Get, give, us, give us an idea. So, lived with the five children in a house in East Perth, and he bought Martha to live with them as the housekeeper. Yeah, so, sure. Yes. So by this point in time, uh, Martha and Thomas had been having an affair for almost 10 years. Jesus Christ. That's some but 9210 they, bullshit. It's a very committed affair. Um, it's almost like, it's almost romantic. <laughs> They're like, wow, 10 whole years. But you're also like, hmm. But they couldn't get married after Thomas and Sarah separated because they weren't divorced. They couldn't get a divorce because divorces were too expensive and also you go to hell. So... Um, they were just separated and Martha just kind of had to like live in sin. So initially she was around the children. She was like, oh, I'm your housekeeper. I'm your nanny. I'm going to look after you and like be Mary Poppins and make your bed and stuff. But then gradually she started presenting herself to like the neighbors and everything like that as the children's mother and as Thomas's wife. So all the neighbors called her Mrs. Morris. They had no idea that they weren't married and that she wasn't the children's actual mother. Um... So the five children who were living with Thomas and Martha at this time, this time being 1907, were William, who's 15, Arthur, 13, George, 12, Annie, 9, and Olive, 7. And life in the little house in East Perth was not blissful. Thomas was always away on work and caring for the children lay solely on Martha. And um, East Perth, as I said before, was kind of a shithole. It was, quote, the site of open drains, factories, tanneries, rubbish dumps, and the city's gasometer with hot summer winds carrying the stench of nearby sewage system into the crowded, ill-ventilated, semi-detached premises. Okay, so I envisioned less Downton Abbey right now. Massively less Downton Abbey, more like those like Dickensian Victorian streets where people like throw buckets of shit out the window. Yeah, it's definitely the opening of Mansfield Park. Yes, it's exactly like the opening of Mansfield Park. Maybe I don't know. What do you, mean <laughs> I don't... you don't know. Oh, I know the opening of Mansfield Park. I just have not been to East Perth in the 1900s, so I can't oh, fair confirm objectively whether or not if I walked the street of East East Perth, whether or not it would be the opening of Mansfield Park. We should go. Um, there. so to East Perth or to Mansfield Park? I think Mansfield Park is pretend. <laughs> to East Perth. Okay, we will. Any listeners in East Perth want to put us up? Mitlutua. Mitlutua, Mitlutua. 
Anyway, talking about buckets of shit, um, in 1907, <laughs> there was a massive outbreak of diphtheria in Perth. Oh, no. So I don't know how I always end up doing these cases that involve, like, illnesses and diseases when I am a known committed hypochondriac. <laughs> But I landed myself in, in, a, in a medicine case again, and I'm not pleased about it. So diphtheria is one of those, like, horrifying old-timey illnesses that people don't really get anymore, but who, that killed, like, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people throughout history. Um, it's a bacterial infection, and the symptoms include, to quote Wikipedia, fever, chills, fatigue, bluish skin coloration, sore throat, hoarseness, a croup-like cough, headache, difficulty swallowing, painful swallowing, difficulty breathing, rapid breathing, foul-smelling and blood-stained nasal gis- discharge, and lymphadenopathy, which means swollen lymph nodes. And some Wikipedia editor was like, I'm just going to make this as complicated as I possibly can. So diphtheria, like, attacks the tissues of the respiratory system and, like, kills the tissue. And then, like, the dead the dead tissue forms, like, a gray coating of the throat which is called a pseudomembrane which like covers your like your tonsils and your voice box and your throat and everything like that which makes it makes it impossible to breathe or swallow if it you know continues on yeah um it can also cause skin legions (laughs) right you should definitely google diphtheria skin legions if you hate yourself and want to punish yourself for something because it is so gross. There was just like a... Anyway, I don't want to describe it. It is so gross. Um, so there are lots of ways that you can die from diphtheria. Um, as the bacteria, the toxin in the bacteria can attack any of the mucous membranes in your body. So you can die of cardiac failure, nerve damage, or you can choke to death or starve to death because the throat tissues... Because you can't swallow or breathe. Exactly. So it's a really, really horrific, gross illness with all kinds of shit attached to it. I can't believe anybody ever survived from it. And so in April of 1907, four out of the five Morris children contracted diphtheria while Thomas was away working. So Martha had to nurse all four disease-ridden children back to health. A process which took more than a month uh, was presumably incredibly disgusting and caused Martha to fall ill herself. So here in the utopian paradise of the 21st century, we have antibiotics to treat diphtheria. Um, but back in the day, the treatment for it was some kind of tincture. So a tincture is like an extract of something, usually a plant, which is dissolved in ethanol. And so like laudanum that, I think I'm saying that right, laudanum, that like old timey, like opium. Uh, Laudanum is a tincture of opium. So it would be like opium diluted in ethanol with a little bit of water. And that's what they gave to people back in the day when they had anything. Sounds tasty, really fucked you up. Um, so Dr. John Cuthbert, who was the physician who attended the Morris children, pres- prescribed a bismuth-based tincture. Um, so bismuth is known today to have, like, antimicrobial and antibacterial properties, and it's really good for, like, your gut health and everything like that, and it's the main ingredient in Pepto-Bismol, which is that American thing it's an that you hear about. It's an antacid. your tum-tum. All I know about it is that it's pink, and they advertise it on American TV. And, like, there's a lot of, like... Oh, I'm going to have to have some Pepto. Yeah, I oh, I had that Taco Bell and now I have to have Pepto-Bismol or whatever. Um, Maybe so, just stop with the acidic foods. I mean, no. Never stop with the acidic foods, everybody. Eat all the Taco Bell you want. I've had it and I can confirm it is delicious. Eh. 
and I didn't need any, I didn't need to cure anything with any bismuth. So he prescribed the bismuth tincture. So what I could, I had to do a lot of like side research for this one because I didn't know anything about any of the medical stuff that they were talking about in the case. Um, all of the information was very much like, hello, it is the 1910s and I am writing this newspaper article and nothing was explained because like ink was super expensive. So the articles were really short. So I had to do a little bit of my own kind of investigation. So what I gleaned from a very thrilling read called A Treatise of Diphtheria, Its Nature, Ooh. Pathology and Homeopathic Treatment. Your skin which was must written have been crawling. Yes. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to the worst. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to the worst part yet. My throat has been sore for the past like three days and I know it's psychosomatic. I know there's nothing <laughs> wrong with me. So this is discussion on the treatments of diphtheria in 1842. So it was a little outdated by 1907. But the, the treatment at that time would be to add a spoonful of the tincture to a quantity of water and gargle it on the hour, every hour, for 24 hours or until, quote, the progress of the disease is arrested. And once you think that the progress of the disease is arrested, i.e. your throat is not actively rotting, like, visibly Holy to the person shit. who is helping you out, um, you can take the tincture once every one and a half hours. Right. So this is... So Martha Randell was doing something like this, some like equivalent of this treatment to four children for over a month. How? That's what like taking care what? of them while they were six in, sick entitled. Exactly. So Dr. Cuthbert commended Martha on her nursing ability and her commitment to the children's wealth, welfare. And eventually they all ended up better for a short time. Ooh. So... They fell ill in April. She was getting them. So by like the end of May-ish, they were all kind of recovering. And in June of 1907, Annie fell ill again. This time she had pains in the stomach, vomiting, diarrhea, and seizures. And Dr. Cuthbert was called in again. So as I said, one of the articles that I researched said that Dr. Cuthbert, Cuthbert diagnosed her with nervous tension. To which I was like, what is nervous tension? I feel like I have nervous tension all day, every day of my Annie life. I had nervous um, tension. Annie had nervous tension. Yeah, so okay. the, the illness that she had was nervous tension. And I was like, that right sounds on. like an old-timey euphemism for something that's worse. And it was. So after you have diphtheria, you can get something which is called diphtheretic neuropathy. right? Which is a, quote, acute demyelinating polyneuropathy, which can develop three to five weeks after a severe round of diphtheria. And basically it means that all of your nerves become paralyzed fabulous so awesome. all of your nerves start to like like misfire and die oh my god yes so Thank dr god Cuth- we don't live in the past oh my god like honestly we've got problems up here in the 21st century but, but they're like at least- mental but they're like yeah, mental right. problems. We're all like anxious and depressed because our society is crumbling, but we do not have diphtheria, we which I'm so relieved. Thank God. I'm stoked about. So, so thrilled. So Dr. Cuthbert prescribed laudanum and gave her the diphtheria antitoxin, which is kind of like a vaccine, yeah. um, which I'm like, yeah, too little, too late, bro. She's already had the diphtheria. Um, so that was the treatment, but it didn't work. And Annie died on the 28th of July, 1907. Her cause of death was given by Dr. Cuthbert as epilepsy, which is just the word that they used for seizures, not like the illness epilepsy, and cardiac weakness due to the fact that her cardiac nerves no longer existed. Um, So a few weeks after Annie died, Olive got sick too. 
She had an infection in her mouth and throat that looked diphtheria-esque, but not like the gray membrane of your like common or garden diphtheria. So Dr. Cuthbert was like, I, I'm stumped. He gave her a tincture of whatever because that was his only treatment for anything and he called in a second opinion uh, in the form of the very fabulously named Dr. William Pope Seed. So very stunning, very stunning old-timey having three names. Um, So Dr. Seed like examined Olive and also did like the Dr. House thing where he like went through all her house to look for environmental problems. Yeah. Um. So he looked at, like, whether or not there was, like, lead in the wallpaper and stuff like that that could be making her sick. And he also made sure that she was, like, being fed and that she wasn't, like, living in her own filth or whatever. And, like, licking the walls, apparently. Yeah, yeah, like, licking the walls and, like, you know, just generally. Mm, lead. Tasty. Hi, lead. I'm hungry. I'm going to have a nice little lead wallpaper snack. <laughs> um... But he couldn't find anything that would cause Olive's particular symptoms. So samples of her throat membrane were sent out for analysis, but they came back negative for diphtheria or any other disease that was known to the doctors. Olive died on October 16th, 1907, with Dr. Cuthbert stating that the cause of death was hemorrhage and enteric fever. So enteric fever can be like a general term that just means like gastrointestinal fever, or it can mean typhoid fever. Oh, not the typhoid. Not the typhoid. One of those one of those other illnesses that I'm very glad that we don't really get that much anymore. Um so I don't know because I wasn't there whether or not he just meant like I was like in the wall being like this is going to be great for a podcast one day. Um so I don't know if he just meant like g- generic gastrointestinal fever or if she literally had typhoid. But I did Google it and I read an article in the British Medical Journal from 1883 that was uh, basically said that like, hey, everyone, we need to look into the fact that diphtheria and typhoid sometimes come in twos. Um, So he the person who read the article told the story about this woman who contracted diphtheria from her two children. She was nursing her two children of diphtheria and they died and then she got sick. And she called the doctor and she was like, I have diphtheria. And he was like, well, you certainly have something. And like got another doctor in. The first doctor like examined. What happened was, is that the first doctor examined her and it looked like diphtheria, but she also had some other weird symptoms. So he got another doctor and the doctor was like, you idiot. She doesn't have diphtheria. There's nothing diphtheria like about her throat. She has typhoid. And then they started curing the typhoid and then she got sick again with diphtheria so what happened was is that like she had both of them but the typhoid like toxin or bacteria suppressed the diphtheria bacteria slash toxin right so it was still in her system but it was just being suppressed by i don't know the stronger bacteria so when she was cured of the typhoid the diphtheria came back um and the whole point of the article was like hey you can have both of these things and you may be misdiagnosing one of one as the other. Um, so it is possible. The point of this long sidebar is that you can have both diphtheria and typhoid and possibly Olive had both diphtheria and typhoid, but the doctors were like, oh my God, we don't know what's wrong with her. Everything's fucky. Panadol hasn't been invented yet. We don't know what to do. Uh, she's dying. Anyway, back to crimes. So about a year later, in August of 1908, so about a year after Olive died, 
um, Arthur became sick with the same unidentifiable condition that Olive had had. Dr. Cuthbert prescribed a tincture of sulfurous acid and glycerin. I googled that and all I found was explosives. I have no idea what sulfurous... Yeah, they were like, do not combine these two things. It makes explosives. And I was like, and it cures your diphtheria, apparently. Apparently. Um, I started reading like a 21 page article about like all the different uses of glycerin, but I, I didn't understand it. So I don't know what it does medically. Um, it apparently didn't do anything medically because Arthur didn't get better. Um, his condition seriously deteriorated and Cuthbert called in a number of other doctors to solve the case, including pathologist Dr. John Cleland, who folks may remember from the Summerton Man episode because he was the pathologist that examined the Summerton Man's dead corpse. Oh my god. So apparently there was only like four doctors in Australia at the time. Apparently. Um... Anyway, none of the doctors that were brought in knew what was going on and Dr. Cleland noted that Arthur was physically wasted and looked like he had the body of an eight-year-old boy even though he was 15. So Arthur's throat membrane similarly came back negative for anything that the doctors could recognize. And then Martha started to fall ill. She went to the doctor and was like, oh, she went to a different doctor and she was like, all of my kids are sick. I'm starting to have a th- sore throat. Like, two of them have died. What's wrong with me? But she managed to be uh, treated and she ended up being okay. Okay. So Arthur was not so lucky and he died on the 8th of October 1908. And this time an autopsy was conducted. um, With Martha Rendell present and observing. So they identified that Arthur's... What? She witnessed the autopsy? She, yeah, she wanted to stand in on the autopsy. What's weird about that, Jess? That's really anyway. weird. So the doctors begin, like, cutting Arthur open. They look at his, like, stomach and bowels and notice that they're congested um, congested, and that they had evidence of hemorrhage. And they're like, okay, you're moving up to the chest and throat. And Martha was like, stop. She was like, don't go any further. You've, you've examined enough. And the doctors are like, okay, well, we'll just take a little sample to take back with us to the lab to see about the... Un, as yet unidentified by science illness that has killed three of your children. She's like, nope, you're not taking any tissues with you. You're done. Get out. Reddest of flags. It's a red flag. Is a red flag. Um, so the doctors, like, using the information that they, they did glean from the autopsy, one doctor thought that um, the cause of death was irritant poisoning, um, but the other doctors disagreed, and the cause of death for Arthur was marked as ulceration of the bowels, hemorrhage, and cardiac failure. So I think it's important to note at this point, nobody thought that anything untoward was going on. They were like, oh my goodness, uh, a marvel of science and medicine. We can't solve this. We can't work out what illness these people have. All these scientists are going to come and have a look at it. Nobody was like, hmm, something is afoot. So when that one doctor was like, I think the cause of death is irritant poisoning, he didn't mean that Arthur was being poisoned. He meant like irritant poison is just like a, a, a phrase for uh, poisoning that causes pain in the digestive tract, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, and urinary tract disorders. Um, right. And it can come from anything. So like if you get like poisoned by a snake or a spider, you have irritant poisoning. Um, so he didn't necessarily think that he'd been poisoned. He just thought that he was dead of poisoning if that makes sense right um and nobody in martha's life like she was a she was a a methodist and the methodist congregation like prayed for her and the family like nobody thought anything was wrong none of her neighbors thought anything was wrong 
everybody was just like, this bitch is the most unlucky person on the planet. Like, three of her children died. She nursed them through all that diphtheria and shit, and then they just died anyway. Like, what a shame. Um, And nothing kind of caught the attention of anybody until April of 1909, when Thomas Morris, who was home from work for once, reported his son George missing. So George was rather quickly located by police with his birth mother. Ooh, okay. Yes. And they were like, oh, George, don't run away, you naughty boy. Um, and they were kind of just expecting to, like, pick him up and, like, bring him back to his to his father who had, you know, had custody of him. Um, but George pleaded with them not to be sent back. And he told police that he had run away because Martha Rendell had murdered his siblings by poisoning them and that he was afraid that he was next. Okay. He said that... He said that he believed that Martha had already begun poisoning George by putting spirits of salts in his tea. And he said that Arthur, the one that died, had told George that Martha painted his throat with spirits of salts. He also told the police that his father, Thomas, was Martha's accomplice in the crimes. Okay. Okay, so spirits of salts is like the old-timey word for hydrochloric acid. All right. Uh-huh. So hydrochloric acid is, like, a pretty common, like, acid to have about. It's used in cleaning stuff. Um, it, like, removes rust from steel and is used to, like, uh, it's used as, like, a pH balancer. So if you've ever had, like, a pool, the thing you use to, like, fix the pH of the pool is a hydrochloric acid. Right. It also occurs naturally inside your stomach and helps you to digest food. Just a fun fact. There you go. Um... So it's it's a corrosive acid, so it, it burns your skin if you have contact with it. So acute exposure to hydrochloric acid can cause uh, corrosion of the mucous membranes, esophagus, and stomach, and contact to this skin can cause burns, ulcerations, and scarring in humans. Long-term exposure to like the gases from hydrochloric acid has been said to cause gastritis, chronic bronchitis, dermatitis, tooth decay, and photosensitization. So people who, like, work, like, in industries where they use hydrochloric acids all the time from inhaling the gases constantly present with these kinds of symptoms. Um, But I couldn't find anything about what happens to you if you have long-term, like, oral hydrochloric acid exposure. Um, You die? That is, like... Well, you die if you drink a whole bunch of it at once. Right. I couldn't find any... No, I found one story about this, like, teacher in Japan who made his children drink hydrochloric acid, like, super, 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 super diluted hydrochloric acid as a punishment for not finishing an assignment or something like that. But to my knowledge, nobody has tried to slowly poison somebody with hydrochloric acid, so I don't know what those symptoms would actually be like and if they match the symptoms that Arthur, Annie, and Olive experienced. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, I did read an article uh, about a woman who committed suicide by swallowing 200 milliliters of 33 to 36% hydrochloric acid. Um, And she rocked up to the hospital and was like, I am in the most severe pain of all time. Um, I've done this thing. And they examined her and she had complete necrosis of all the parts of her body that the acid had touched. And she died 10 hours after she was admitted to the hospital due to multi-organ failure. Oh, no. I saw photos and her intestines honestly looked like burned sausages. 
Why did you look at that? Because I had read the article. I was like, what happens to you if you swallow hydrochloric acid? Oh, Jesus bloody Christ. Okay, yep. Um, my search history, honestly, after this episode, like the FBI agent who was spying on me is like, <laughs> we've got one. Hi, John. Boys. Boy, Hi, John. How you doing? Um, how's the family? <laughs> So anyway, back back to the past. Uh, the police took George's story very, very seriously and they immediately mounted a murder investigation. Um, custody of George was granted to his mother, Sarah, and Arthur, Annie and Olive's bodies were exhumed from Karakata Cemetery on the 10th of July, 1909, oh, and a coronial inquest was established. Those bodies, like, they must have been... Fucked up. They <laughs> must have been fucked up. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So, coronial inquest established. This is the murder of three children. Let's not make jokes about it. It's not. The press, like, in Perth, which had been a town for, like, five minutes and, like, nothing had happened in that time apart from a gold rush, was like, yes. This is what we've been waiting for. We're running with it. We're running with it. This is one headline from the, like, first day of the inquest. A city sensation, the death of the three Morris children, an inquest opened, how the little ones died, the brother's story. Ooh, that's a very new idea. It's very like, ten heartwarming stories about child poisoning, the ninth one will warm your heart. Like, it's very old-timey clickbait. And it worked. Everybody was like eating this shit for breakfast. They loved all the stories. It was like, number one story, bestseller all the time. Um... And the story only became juicier when it was revealed that Martha wasn't actually the mother of the children. Oh, they must have bloody loved that shit. So the papers found out that she she wasn't even technically their stepmother because her and Thomas weren't married. She was just like a bitch in the house. And they were like, oh my God, this adulterer, this seductress separated this mother from her children and then killed them. They were, like, living for the drama of it all. So the inquest began in August of 1909, and it saw witness testimony from a rather large number of people. Sarah Morris was one of them, and she stated that Martha Rendell had gotten between herself and Thomas Morris, and that Sarah had left Thomas after an altercation that left her with a black eye. She also stated that after the separation, Sarah used to walk the children home from school so she could still have contact with them, Um, But she stopped doing it as the children told her that when Thomas and Martha found out that they'd seen Sarah in the day, they would beat them. She said that she found out about the deaths of her three children from a friend and that she had come across her older sons, William and George, in the street one day and they told her that they were going to run away because they were frightened of Martha. She said that when George came to stay with her after the deaths of his siblings, he complained of having a sore throat. William Morris, who was the oldest son, said that on the day before Annie became ill, she had had an argument with Martha after she wouldn't do some task that Martha had told her to do because Martha was, quote, not her mother. Annie was then beaten by Martha and sent to bed without dinner. The next day, she came home sick from school and never recovered. William said that he saw a bottle of spirit of salts in Annie's room before she died, and he also saw a different bottle of spirits of salt when Olives was ill. And then when Arthur got sick, Martha allegedly sent William out to buy another bottle. William testified that he was not aware of what spirits of salt was, but the bottle was labeled poison. He said that um, Arthur told him that the medicine he was taking for his illness burned his throat and chest, made him feel sick, and gave him toothache, making it impossible for him to eat. 
He said that after Arthur died, George began to feel sick and would gargle vinegar to cure his sore throat. He told William that he thought his illness was caused by tea that Martha would give him to drink, which tasted bitter. And I googled it, and according to the subreddit, no stupid questions, apparently hydrochloric acid is quite sour in taste. So So George testified next. If your tea is a bit sour, it could be hydrochloric hydrochloric acid. acid. Or maybe somebody put lemon in it. Some people drink tea with lemon. And honey? Some people do. I've had like iced tea with just lemon. And I pretended to enjoy it because somebody else ordered it for me. Um, So George testified next and he recalled an incident where Martha called him into Annie's sick room to watch Annie try and get out of bed. Annie was crying, trying to pull herself up out of bed, but she was too weak to do so. And George said that Martha didn't do anything to help Annie and just watched her struggle. George said that he was also sent out to buy spirit of salts on uh, several occasions. He said that on one occasion, he witnessed Martha put a pair of scissors down Olive's throat with like wet toweling wrapped around each blade. Olive threw up and began to cry and Martha beat her for it. Absolutely not. Big no, big no, right? Um, he also claimed to have seen Martha pour spirit of salts into a toy, like a teacup from like a tea set, like a really little teacup, um, and bring the teacup along with a long wire brush into Arthur's room. He also said that he overheard a conversation between Thomas and Martha after the deaths of the three children where Thomas said, I have only got two left now. Martha replied, anyone would think I was the cause of it. And Thomas said, so you are. And George was like, um, I think my parents are trying to murder us. I think I'm going to go. <laughs> I think I'm going to go find my real mum. Sorry. Um, so a neighbour, Mrs. Carr, testified and she said that she heard Arthur crying frequently when he was ill. Mrs. Carr suggested that Arthur go to the hospital and Martha said that she would not allow any of her children to be sent there. Mrs. Carr, this, this, this is... I don't believe this one bit. But Mrs. Carr also said that Arthur called out to her on a number of occasions, murder, police, Mrs. Carr, save me. To which that she apparently... That sounds like some stirring of the pot, Mrs. Carr. That sounds like a little bit of, a little bit of the old Mrs. Carr. A little Carr, bit of drama in her there. life. Yeah. She also said that she looked through the window one day and saw Martha shoving something down Arthur's throat. Mrs. Carr said that one day when she was in Arthur's sick room for some reason... Um, with Martha, she took the bottle of medicine by Arthur's bed, smelled it, and said, Good God, woman, you are not using this for the boy's throat. It is enough to kill a horse. To which Martha said that the doctor had ordered it and she was going to use it. Another time, Mrs. Carr was with Martha in Arthur's room, and Martha said, Look at him trying to get up as Arthur struggled up from his bed and began to laugh at him. All right, Mrs. Carr, where were you during this whole thing? Why were, if this was all this, what the fuck? Just you wait, because that was addressed. So she also said that Martha took, like, when Arthur was, like, getting really, really sick, she put him, like, out on the veranda to, like, lie. I don't know whether it was, like, fresh air or something like that, but he was lying on the veranda. Get some sun. Yeah, get some sun, some sea air, you know. Um, So he took him out to the veranda and told him to lay there and die. So when the lawyer for Thomas and Martha, a Mr. J.W. Clydesdale, was like, so why precisely, Mrs. Carr, did you never tell any of this to the police? Mrs. Carr was like, well, I assumed that Martha was the children's mother and she was acting on the doctor's orders. But as soon as she found out, 
as soon as she found out that Martha wasn't the real mother of the children, that's when she went to the police. Because the real crime here is adultery. The real crime here is not being married at age 39. Jesus um, Christ. So the doc- all the doctors, the various doctors who examined the children also gave evidence. Dr. Cuthbert was like, I don't know what was wrong. Um, he said that Annie and Olive had much of the same symptoms, but Annie had seizures as well. And Arthur had the same disease to the mucous membrane as Olive, but also had burning pains in his stomach. So they were like kind of the same, but like, it was like a Venn diagram of like, these symptoms were the same, but each child had something individually wrong that was different. Um, he said that he believed that it was possible that very small quantities of spirits of salt might have contributed to Arthur's condition. A doctor named Dr. Cumpston. Dr. Cumpston. Dr. Cumpston. (laughs) All right. Which is not the best name I've ever heard in my life. Um, He was the one that thought Arthur had irritant poisoning and he was basically like, well, I thought he had irritant poisoning and the lawyers were like, okay, thank you for your time. Um, But he was also like, the autopsy was incomplete. We didn't get to finish the autopsy um, because of Martha. Uh, The government analyst, Edward Mann, who... Sorry, ma'am, I'm going to need to leave the room because we do need to complete this autopsy. Well, I guess. I don't know. I think, you know, because people were all like, hey, don't desecrate my body. Jesus needs that. It wasn't necessarily like... But seriously, it was, like, a thing that they didn't want, like, their body and everything to be cut up because, like, or, like, have parts taken away from it. I just need to say that out loud so Zane could hear. She said, hey, don't desecrate my body. Jesus needs that. How is Jesus going to, like, hold your hand and walk you into paradise if your chest is falling out, you know? Because they didn't, they didn't, they took a bit of you out. In your autopsy. You're not whole. You're not whole, exactly. Um, So (laughs) the guy that exhumed the bodies, who uh, conducted the analysis of the exhumed bodies, um, said that the purpose of the exhumation was to determine whether the children died from the effect of the acid alone or if their death was, quote, partly due to the poisonous impurities contained in the acid. So, like, when the acid, like, you know, the acid can have more impacts than just like the the physical impact so one like impurity that is in hydrochloric acid is arsenic so I don't really fully understand the chemistry of it even though I tried so that it was like they could have had these like not a chemist I'm so deeply not a chemist I study like oh how do kangaroos hop like (laughs) there's nothing (laughs) there's nothing that chemical about it we're gonna go into that in Mitlu after dark how do kangaroos hop? How do kangaroos hop? <laughs> um, the answer to that is legs and tails. Uh, so he said that there was no evidence of hydrochloric acid in the children's bodies, but there was also nothing inconsistent with the use of hydrochloric acid. So basically he said, sweet fuck all. Um, Thomas Morris's employer, Alfred Raphael, said that Morris told him that he was summoned to be a juror in a case where children were poisoned and a pol- and the police suspected a woman, but he didn't mention the fact that the children were his own 
and that he wasn't a juror, but he was actually the co-accused. He also asked Raphael if it would be possible for the police to find traces of poison after such a long time. That's um, not suspicious. Not at all suspicious. A bacteriologist and pathologist who uh, did this experiment on guinea pigs on the effects of spirits of salt and the impact that bismuth would have on their condition, as Arthur was prescribed the bismuth to try and cure as whatever. The guinea pigs died. Um, Martha Rendell got up and on her part she said that she never recalled telling either of the boys to purchase spirits of salt for her and she denied ever having used any for any purchase including cleaning. Hello Fifi. Um, she recalled asking Mrs. Carr to smell a medicine bottle but said that Mrs. Carr didn't really have any particular reaction or response to the smell and she denied using wrap scissors to paint the children's throats and she also said that she never did anything that a doctor didn't order. She said that she told the doctors examining Arthur's body to stop because she had believed they had done enough to ascertain his cause of death. Thomas Morris also got up and didn't say much, um, and but he did say that he had used spirits of salt on occasion for mending things. So the coroner found that there was sufficient evidence to charge both Martha and Thomas with willful murder, and so they were charged. The trial, to quote the newspaper of the time, was an exhaustive one, beginning on the 7th of September 1909 and ending a whopping one week later on the 14th of September. That is exhausting. Exhaustive. Exhaustive. They had a, they, there was a newspaper article when they were like, the headline was like, Morris trial continues, juries are prisoners. <laughs> because they'd like, the jury's like, we've been here for such a long time. And it was like a week like imagine the jury in the Snowtown case that took like literally eight months. They were literally prisoners. They were literal prisoners. Um, but also they were not prisoners at all. They were just jury people. Anyway, so they were only tried for the murder of Arthur Morris, presumably because there was more evidence from William and George about Arthur's death than there were for any of his sisters. And also he had the post-mortem. Um, so the evidence given at the trial was mostly the same as from the inquest. There are little bits and pieces added though. Um, for example, like when I was, I don't know if this is true, but when I was reading the newspaper reports from the inquiry, Mm. when George was telling the story about how, uh, Martha called him in to watch Annie struggle out of bed in the inquiry, he said he just, she watched her struggle but then in the trial, she said that she sat in a rocking chair and laughed at Annie while she struggled to get out of bed. That sounds so that, like that lady from The Simpsons. Huh? Okay. <laughs> I feel like there's like a lady in The Simpsons who like, oh, Flanders, his crazy aunt, who like sits in a rocking chair and just laughs. Yes, that's what Martha Rendell was doing at her child who was dying. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I have a pretty good Simpsons knowledge, and I don't know what you're talking about. Um, So a bunch of, like, chemists and plumbers and other people testified that either Martha, Thomas, William, or George had all purchased spirits of salts from them at one time or another. Dr. Cleland was flown in from Sydney Special and he gave evidence um, that the sample of the membrane that was supplied to him appeared to be negative for both typhoid and diphtheria. Dr. Cleland said that the application of spirits of salt, quote, furnished a reasonable explanation of the peculiar and unique symptoms of the case. He also stated that he was unable to recall any other case where death was caused by a consistent low application of hydrochloric acid and the only 
case that any of the doctors could recall came from a death of a patient who had ingested a large amount of hydrochloric acid. So they also didn't know really what the long-term poisoning would result in. Right. Um, Dr. Cleland was given a sample of rabbit membrane from that guy who did those tests, and he said that um, the sample of the ra- rabbit membrane appeared to be similar to the sample that he was given from the children. Uh, Edward Mann, the government analyst, said that he found no traces of dental damage to any of the children's remains and found no evidence of hydrochloric acid or its residual impurities in the remains owing to the effects of bodily decomposition. So during cross-examination, Clydesdale, who again was the lawyer for Thomas and Martha, tried to paint the picture that the various doctors gave the children inadequate medical care, but the totality of their evidence and the fact that they were all kind of in agreement that the children had all died from the same thing meant that he didn't really he wasn't really successful in creating reasonable doubt yeah he didn't call any witnesses himself he stated in his final argument that the prosecution failed to provide a motive that the postmortem had no evidence consistent with poisoning and that the prosecution didn't prove that martha knew anything about the impacts of hydrochloric acid and he also made the point that this is me paraphrasing his phrasing but he he said like she didn't have the knowledge to administer enough hydrochloric acid to kill the children, like enough quantity of hydrochloric acid to kill the children, but a small enough quantity that it would be untraceable and like unrecognizable to any doctor who examined them. He was like, this lady just does not have that information in her brain bank. The prosecution rests. Well, the the defense rests. Um, The prosecution was like, she did it. She's a witch. Um... Burn her. So the jury deliberated... Burn her. Stone her for her adulterous crimes. The jury deliberated for three hours and 45 minutes. Um, Martha was found guilty of willful... Exhaustive. Those poor prisoners. Martha was found guilty of willful murder and was sentenced to death by hanging. Thomas Morris was found not guilty. You're joking! So there was this whole thing that I didn't include because I wanted to save it for now, but where they were like, you know, they were like, you can trust that William and George are telling the truth because if they were lying, it would mean that Thomas, their father, would go to prison. But, like, that doesn't really... I don't know. It was this point that they kept on making the newspaper articles where they were like, you know, you can believe them because if they lie, it means their father will go to prison. But it's like, well... If they were telling the truth and he was a part of it, he would also go to prison. Like, he was also accused of the crime. But anyway, so the guilt, the jury were torn, apparently, between guilty and not guilty. They believed that Thomas had had knowledge of what Martha was doing to the children, but not that he had aided her in the murders, which is what he was accused of. So they asked the judge if they could find him guilty as an abettor after the fact, to which the judge said, no, it's guilty or not guilty. So they found him not guilty. Um, afterwards, when asked if she had anything to say in her defense all martha said was i am not guilty once again the newspapers in western australia were losing their damn minds this is the first time a woman had been sentenced to death by hanging in like 30 years and the headlines included woman sentenced to death impressive summing up which referred to justice mcmillan's summing up to the jury which took over two hours uh sentenced to death spirits of salts the medium was another good one as was uh this one, which had some great punctuation. To hang, exclamation point. On Wednesday week, full stop. Martha Rendell to pay the penalty, exclamation uh, mark. There was also the simple yet effective, 
effective murder of children and the classic murder most foul. Ooh. Martha was, How very I Chicago. know, they were like, we're, we're bringing it out. We're bringing out the big guns. Guys, it's time to use it. Murder most foul. And they were like, oh, yes, perfect. Um, so Martha was repeatedly vilified, not only as a child murderer, which like is kind of the worst thing of it all, but as a wanton woman, a homewrecker, a seductress and an adulterer. Much was made of her cool demeanor throughout the trial. So there was all this thing about how, like, Thomas Morris was so upset the whole time and she was so cool and she didn't react to anything. But again, she was wearing a veil through most of the proceedings, so nobody could really see how she was reacting to anything. And also, if she had been reacting, then they'd be like, oh, what an actress. Exactly. Oh, There's no she way she could win. Such the game. Exactly. Um,. So the trial had had a massive turnout in terms of audience numbers, mostly from women because A, women love true crime and B, they were kind of like, they were like, oh, you know, she's, we're good virtuous mothers. This is an evil woman. Like we're the good, they were really condemning her and being like, we're the good version of what she is. She's, you know. She's bad. She, she's bad to the bone, baby, but we're all good. We love So Jesus. there was... We love Jesus and being married. <laughs> um, the moral of the story is like, if you're going to have an affair, make sure you marry him afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was a petition for re- for a reprieve from hanging presented to the executive council uh, saying that there was insufficient evidence for her conviction. And the council was like, no, thank you. We're quite keen on this whole hanging business. Uh, Martha spent just under a month in prison awaiting her execution and many articles were written about her time in captivity. There was gossip that Thomas Morris never went to visit her in prison but he in fact did and he stood by Martha stating I know her better than anyone else and I say she was incapable of doing what is attributed to her. She may have appeared hard outwardly but no woman ever had a more tender heart than she. Um, On the evening before her execution, Martha made a brief statement to the press through her spiritual advisor, Reverend Allen. She said, after the, there was absolutely no punctuation in this as well. After the appeals by my spiritual guide to confess for the mercy of Jesus Christ on the last day of my life, before the gallows, I say, I am innocent. I pray God forgive those who swore falsely my life away. Uh, It was said that on the last night of her life, she didn't cry, but prayed and completed devotional exercises. She was hanged on the 6th of October, 1909. The press gathered outside the prison as they were not allowed inside, which was like, good call. Um, it happened after just after 8 a.m. And afterwards, her body was examined by the jail medical examiner, Dr. Williams, and he declared that her death was instant. She was then taken to Fremantle Cemetery, where she was buried in the portion where those who committed suicide and those who committed murder were buried. There was a small service which was attended by Thomas Morris and two friends as well as a few prison staff. Uh, Reverend Allen spoke later and said that he was firm in his belief that Martha was innocent. He said that just before she left her cell to go be hanged, she asked him to thank the jail staff for their kindness to her. He said her final words were, I am completely and absolutely innocent of the crime for which I am dying. So Martha Rendell was buried in an unmarked grave and then a few decades later, her the body of um, Eric Edgar Cook, who was a serial killer, who we will most likely cover in Perth, was placed into the grave next to her. So she shares her grave with, like, a mass serial killer. Oh, God. So that's the story. That's corked. I'm Do you so... reckon she did it? 
I don't know. I think it's probably like one once again people trying to fathom the deaths of children. Because yeah, it is I agree awful. with that. And yeah. you're thinking, oh, this can't just happen because you know some doctor said, oh, look, this what do you call it? Tankter tanks it. Tincture. Tincture. They're like, all oh, this tincture, she'll get it. And it's like, it, it, it must be really hard to like fathom the death of a child. And obviously you want to know why. I just don't mm. think it was, uh, I don't think so. I think it was just, they had diphtheria. It's a really hard disease to recover from. And it was probably just complications. The air sucks. The water quality probably sucked. And they just got sick and they died. They live near the sewers. Like yeah, my main issue not. is that the only like, the evidence in terms of like eyewitness testimony comes from her two stepsons who wanted to live with their mother again. Yeah. Um, and and the neighbor. This is the best way to get out of it. Very possibly. And the neighbor who was like, oh, she all this stuff like happened, but I. She little gossip. She really did. And she was like the next door neighbor, and the houses were right next to each other, and she could like see into the window. And I just can't believe if she really thought. That, that the children anything. were being that tortured. So convenient. It just seems so convenient. And the fact was is that there was no evidence. The thing that I, you know, think from reading all about like hydrochloric acid and ruining my search history is that um, also I did it while logged into the Mitlu Gmail. So we're going to get some weird ad recommendations. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, hydrochloric acid like burns your entire body. I yeah. can't believe... You know, I've accidentally burned myself with the pH balance stuff and it was literally like it wouldn't have even been a drop. Like I just touched the lid of the bottle and I had a burn on my thumb. Like it was the... the They would have been covered in it. I They would have had more obvious burns on the... On the in their esophagus and on their mouths and things like that yeah if that kid was drinking tea that had hydrochloric acid in it like as i said i touched the lid of a bottle and i had a visible burn on my hand i think i think it's just too hard to fathom the loss of like let one child let alone what three yeah i mean i don't know how they got sick i'm not a doctor um well i have to get in contact with friend of the podcast dr ed hope and he can talk to us about diphtheria. I'll send him a message. Please, please. I want to know because I really do feel like, you know, they could have just all died of, you know, it's Zane's kind like, of like that house. We've been doing this podcast for over a year and you had your face away from the mic and you shouted at the floor thinking that it was going to go through the mic <laughs> magically into the podcast realm. And he starts looking at me like I'm some sort of idiot. And you know what? Yes, I am some sort of idiot. <laughs> Podcasting's hard. Yeah, I no, never I remember to put my like mouth where the microphone is. I don't. I don't think so. I think you know. I'm obviously just not sold. Problematic that her and Thomas like got together as they did. They obviously really cared about each other. And I mean, to nurse the children for that long, like that's the thing. If they had gotten sick and then they died, like and then they died, like shortly afterwards. But they got yeah, better. Yeah, they got better, and then they got sick again. Like that seems like a lot of effort. Yeah. And also, Arthur died a full year after Olive, so I don't understand why she would just chill for a year and then be like, "Okay, now time to poison the third one." Yeah, and I he don't was think sick. So. He was sick for a couple months, where the girls mm. were sick for a couple of weeks. Well, not a couple. I like feel five like if so she weeks. wanted to murder the children, which I'm not saying that she did, I feel like there are 
more efficient ways so than her like, staying up all night with looking after kids with diphtheria if she didn't actually care about them if she no wanted them way. to die she just had to not give them the medicine for yeah, diphtheria and they would have died of the diphtheria hundreds of people died of diphtheria people who were treated you know sometimes people just can't fight it off yeah um As so said, i just like, don't know bad water living conditions was probably questionable bathing all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff you have to like sort of like bring into it and yeah it seems very convenient and that neighbor what a bitch don't trust a word that she said no i think exactly. it's fully like I, it is kind of like you're like hmm all three children had mysterious illnesses unknown to science but also it's like maybe it's they just missed something it's 1909 like, who knows if knows if shit. they if they got to complete the autopsy and cut open Arthur, they could have seen something in his esophagus that would, you know, but they didn't do an autopsy on the other girls. They have no idea what it was like inside until yeah. it was too late. I also I just wanted know. to say at the end, I don't know if she did it. I don't know if she didn't do it. You know, I don't necessarily have strong feelings one way or the other. I think she was really unfairly vilified by our standards for being, mm. you know, unmarried and living in sin and shit like that. Like we wouldn't have cared about anything like that this to this day. But online, when you Google this case, it's all stories about wicked stepmothers and how she's the real-life wicked stepmother. And there's so much just, like, salacious information. I know it's been 100 years, but, like, the Wikipedia article has an unsighted reference to the fact that she derived, like, she was witness, like, but a witness said she derived sexual satisfaction from watching the children die. Like... That's on the Wikipedia article for this case, and it's, like, so blatantly untrue. But the story has just been, like, repeated and, like, told so many times and just gotten more and more salacious and dramatic. And, you know, when I started researching it, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be so fucked up. Like, this bitch was cooked. And then when I was actually reading the newspaper articles from the time and all these great journal articles that I read from people who have, like, examined the case since – and been like, hmm, maybe she was just a woman and that was her main crime. You know, none Oof. of that. Yeah, right? <laughs> they were like, uh. maybe she was just an unmarried, unattractive, older woman who had the indignity of wanting to be married to a man that she couldn't marry. And she happened to have three children die. Children died all the fucking time. You know, yeah. back in the day, it was a miracle if you lived past five. And if you're a poor person living in the middle of a diphtheria outbreak, I think oh your, you know, life expectancy is greatly decreased. And also, like, rec- I, I mean, look, not an expert on diphtheria, but, like, no. obviously your immune system and your body in general is going to be very uh, susceptible to any sort of infection afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you like, it's not unlikely that you're going to get, like, it's not unlikely that you're going to get sick again. Like, you probably will. And it's known it's that, especially, especially with Annie, since she died straight, like, almost soon afterwards, I think it's almost 100% certain that she had that diphtheretic neuropathy thing, yeah. which has, like, seizures and stomach pains and everything like that was her cause of death. Olive, possibly, Olive was the youngest, and it said that, um, well, in my reading, like, diphtheria, like, obviously, the smaller you are and the weaker you are, the harder it is to fight off the bacteria so she mm. could have just been so weakened from it that anything could have taken hold of her arthur is the big question mark because it was a year later so it's kind of like mm, 
you wouldn't really think that he would have any of those like cardiac problems or anything like that from then but also who knows what else was going on but like with back in the day with like anything that affected the respiratory system like your cardiac system would become weak and that Mm -hmm. it was highly likely that your heart would fail because Mm -hmm. your your system would be just so weakened by the disease that well there's that and the fact that the diphtheria and also it could have just been a it could have just been a pulmonary disease that he already had Mm. but the 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 diphtheria as i said in the episode like the the toxin can affect your nerve tissue and your cardiac tissue as well as your any mucous membrane so any part of your body that's like wet essentially can be attacked by this toxin so it's super super common for it to spread to those parts of your body like that's the the environment that the toxin thrives in so it's we like, are not doctors and we do not we're know. We're so not we doctors. We were I read there. five articles from the 1880s about how people had diphtheria. And I'm like, well, actually, in my medical opinion, Dr. Tuck, John Cleland, the world famous um, pathologist, knows nothing and I'm smart. <laughs> well, uh, great opening to our Western Australian season, Ellen. Very, very interesting. Also proud of you for that exposure therapy on, once again, examining (laughs) illnesses that your brain tricks you into thinking that you have. Very, very proud. Um, I haven't selected my first case for Western Australia yet. You should do Eric Edgar Cook. Uh, Yeah, look, that does sound fun. That does Mm. sound fun. Um, but I will have, I'm going to have another look tonight. Um, now that my life's sort of out of crisis for now, um, will throw myself into the books. Nice. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us for how many seasons is this now? Our sixth season? Six. Queensland, yeah. New South Wales. Six. Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia. On to our sixth season. It's six. There's only seven states in Australia, Jess. We've got one after this. It's six. Two ter- and the five states, two territories, and we haven't done ACT. No, and there's the cooked stuff there that we got to do. We will. It'll happen. I promise. This isn't um, going to be like Community Channel and Lamingtons. We will actually do ACT. Yes. Um. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um. As we said at the top, if you would like to get in contact with us about cases you would like us to cover, you can message us on Instagram. Uh, we're Murder in the Land of Oz. Um. We have an email account that you can message us, murderinlandofoz at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Um, yeah, lots of stuff going on. Um, also, we probably will talk about it a, a little bit more in depth, but uh, the um, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, the man who uh, murdered Eurydice Dixon was uh, sentenced the other day to life for the murder of Eurydice Dixon uh, last year in Melbourne, which is, uh, you know, it's nice uh, that justice has been served. Obviously doesn't bring back Eurydice, which is mm-hmm. what would be ideal. Um, but, yeah, there's a there's been a lot of stuff going on true crime-wise that we'll have a chat on on our uh, Mitlu After Dark on our Patreon. So if you would like to listen to that content, uh, become a Patreon. We'd love to have you. Um, we're very grateful for this ever-growing group of people around us that are really supporting this podcast. It's very nice. Um, and make sure you're rating and reviewing and subscribing on iTunes. You can also leave us a review on Facebook. We like to hear it. We need positive reinforcement because we are millennials. 
Yes. Yes. Please give us a participation trophy. Yes, please. I would like a sticker. I would like 10,000 subscribers. Yes. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. All righty, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you in a fortnight. Goodbye. Bye. What should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. At Irish Life Health, we reward you for embracing a healthier lifestyle. With our benefit plan, you can get up to €250 back on things like fitness wearables, gym membership or sports club membership, like your local GAA club. Search Irish Life Health. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life Health. Irish Life Health Act is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Terms and conditions apply. Call us to see exactly what's covered. You join us on the hollowed turf of our back garden. Sean, 13, is attempting to break his keepy-uppy record, unbeaten for the last two years. Looking good, Sean. Three more to go. Oh, no. Pitch invader. Late drama here as he's stolen the ball. Adidas tracksuit and trainers from Littlewoods, Ireland. (sighs) Own goal by Buster. Shop the brands you love at littlewoodsireland.ie.